Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Coromdeo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is Fourth Wednesday Theology and we are in the final chapter of Herman Bobbing's The Wonderful Works of God, talking about eternal life. It's the last chapter. Man, we made it. And we have, I, I appreciate listeners that want to honor the moment. Ross from North Carolina sent us mm-hmm. Dutch waffles from Sioux Center, Iowa. And he said this is specifically in honor of the last Bobbing episode. Yeah. He, he said that uh, his, both of his parents are originally from Orange City, Iowa, and that Orange City is one of Bobbing's favorite Dutch places to visit on his American trips. Actually, I am reading right now the James Eglinton biography. There you go. And I just read that section in Bovink on Monday night. Uh, The section where he, there's an appendix where it's like his journal from his trip to America. And he specifically mentions Orange City. Wow. As like a place where a bunch of Dutch people have settled and Sioux Center also. So yeah, he was a big Orange City, Iowa fan. Didn't he win an award for that? Journal entry, like his travel writing. I yeah, think actually his won travel writing was well, yeah, well loved and well known. And that's as far west as he got in North America. So he never crossed the Missouri River into <laughs> Nebraska. It was just like Sioux Center was like as far as he got, and he went turned <laughs> he around went like, back to Michigan. Not much in back Nebraska to, the, to see. back to the Holland, Michigan, where the rest of the Dutch folks were. So, but yeah, there's a huge. You know, it's taken me a long time to figure this out, just because I'm not a very good student of my own culture. But there's a large, what would you call it, like an expatriate Dutch community that's settled in Michigan and Iowa for Mm -hmm. a long time, since the 1800s. And so those parts of our country are heavily Dutch because of that Dutch presence. And so many of those people still had relatives living in the Netherlands during Bovink's life that it was very common. Like he had a guy he went to high school with who graduated and then moved to the U.S. and became a pastor in Michigan. And so it was very common for folks to have family members who you know, one part of the family was in the Netherlands and the other part was here in America. Yeah. From what I remember, it was that cedar movement that Bob Inc.'s family was a part of yes. that they broke off from the state church and some of them stayed in Holland. Some of them immigrated to yep. the U.S. Among them, Gerhardus Foss. That's right. One of one of the other great Dutch theologians. Through whom we all time. learned biblical theology yes. because he influenced people like, uh, people like Kistemacher and Hendrickson who taught me, but also people who taught Tim Keller at Gordon Conwell. Ed Clowney. Yeah. They were all influenced by Gerhardus Foss. Yes. So if you like good, healthy biblical theology, you know, guys like Gerhardus Foss played a role. All that to say, Ross, you can't even say Ross's last name because it's so Dutch. Right. Ross, I, your I last would name. Try, Ross, but I don't wanna... we thank you for being a listener. <laughs> your last name is clearly so Dutch. We just looked at him like, well, yeah, that's a Dutch name. It's one of those names that has lots of silent vowels or consonants. It's <laughs> like there's, I don't even want to try to say it because yeah. we're going to mess it up. There's like the the real Dutch names and then there's like <laughs> Mindy's maiden name is Riken. Like very simple, easy. Yes. <laughs> I do need someone to clarify for me. We were having a conversation. Are Stroopwafels Dutch? Are they German? Are they Belgian? I feel like they're, I don't know which of those places really gets to claim the Stroopwafel. These ones clearly since they're from Sioux Center, Iowa are Dutch, mm-hmm. but I don't know whose who's original food this is, you know? So we could do one of two things. We could, hey, listener, write in and give us a history, or we, we could ask chat GPT. Oh, wow. Do you think chat GPT knows? I don't know. 
But I would prefer a listener writer. That would be, that would be <laughs> I better. Don't, I don't trust artificial intelligence. Bethany's probably finding out right now. She's asking Chat GPT where the Stroop waffle came from. While she does that, we're going to talk about Bombing's chapter on eternal life. We'll let you know what we learn on the Stroop waffles. It's a Dutch treat. It's Whoa. Dutch. Yeah. There you go. Yep. It's Dutch. Bethany did the research right here as we speak. I didn't use Chat GPT for she, what it's worth. She used the normal internet, Google. y'all. Google. Listen, I just wish most of the people that I have ever known in my life would read this chapter of Herman Bovink. The reason is because when good classic Reformed writers write about eternal life, they tend to do so in a way that's so nice and full. And it feels to me like this is a thing that because of the fascination American evangelicalism has had with like the second coming and left behind and the rapture, this is a whole area of thought that can get real flattened. And the questions we ask can become very small. Bavink wants to frame it as, you know, it's the last chapter of his systematic theology. It's, it's the, the last thing he wants to talk about. And he wants to give us a vision of this that includes death, what happens to the soul after death, what is Christ's second coming like, what is judgment, what is new heavens and new earth, what is heaven and hell. All these subjects are taken up in this last chapter. And, um, as usual, he does it in a full way, a rich way, but a way that's not hard to access. It's not confusing to read. It's very simple, very plain, and even tackles some of the questions that I know our listeners have. In fact, I got one of these questions from someone in our church two weeks ago who sat down with me and said, hey, I need to understand what happens to us after we die. Because mm. uh, I had mentioned Sheol in a sermon, and he was like, that really confused me. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about what happens after we die. And so let me. Um, there's a few things I sort of want to highlight in the chapter. But the first thing I want to mention is how Bovink, this is um, Bovink doing cultural apologetics. He's brilliant at this. How he starts with a premise and he shows how based on that premise, it fails in its conclusion. The premise he starts with is evolution. He says, hey, let's assume evolution is true. Lots of people in our day and age believe in evolution, believe that, you know, we got here, you know, by a random process descended from non-living things or, uh, or non-human matter. And um, so he says... Let's assume that evolution is true. A lot of people who believe in evolution also assume that everything's going to come out good in the end. Like that, you know, whatever the afterlife is, it'll be fine. We don't need to worry too much about it. What he writes is the thought that in the end, everything will come out satisfactorily is itself already a guess. And it is one which finds no support in scripture and the conscience in nature and in history. I like how he's just basically saying, you could think that, but it's, there's no support for it anywhere. He says, but assume for a moment this guess were correct. Then this would be a condition which could never remain so for the same law of development which had been operative before and which brought about this new condition would continue to operate and cause the human being to enter a different condition. What he's saying is if you want continuous evolution, you can't just stop that at some point in history and say, now we're in the blessed state. He's saying you you always have to be continually evolving and therefore there can be no, in the end, place of rest, repose, any final state of things. And so it's silly to say you believe in evolution, but you also believe that somehow everything's going to come out okay in the end. Um, the only thing you could believe in is the continued and ongoing evolution forever and ever and ever and ever that things are always going to be changing. And so he says there's only movement there's no rest. There's only a becoming. There is no being. There's only the creature. There is no creator. That's where that line of thinking takes you. 
When I read this, uh, it reminded me of the end of the TV show, The Good Place. Did you guys ever watch yeah. The Didn't Good Place? Didn't watch it. Yes. So it's, it, you should watch it. It's because it's a fascinating bit of philosophical, um, just thought put to a TV show. But at the, the end of the show, when they, when they actually arrive at the legit good place, it, it kind of, in some ways, takes this premise of if we're, we're kind of always evolving, there's this sense of there's no actual rest. And the only way to achieve that is non-being. And so it, the, what I appreciated about that show is it was philosophically consistent and yeah. it said, hey, this isn't satisfactory, like this, just this like ongoing state of development. There, there, there actually needs to be a sense of rest. Mm. And for them, the answer was you can pass into this place of non-being. So I, I found this very fascinating the way Bavink highlighted that, which he also makes the connection between evolution and kind of that spiritualism yes. that that's where it leads to. So yeah, it's a brilliant piece of uh, analysis. Now, there's a few things Bavink says in this chapter that just few sentences that if you think about them, like, okay, that's really powerful. Here's one of them. In scripture writes Bavink on page 528, death is never the equivalent of annihilation or of not being. To die and to be dead is used as a contrast to the whole life, the full life, which was man's portion originally. So he says, when you die, then you exist in the state of death. You no longer belong to the earth, but you're inhabited. He's talking about the Old Testament here. He's an inhabitant of the realm of the dead, Sheol, a place which is thought of as being in the depths of the earth, even beneath the waters and the foundation of the hills. The deceased still have an existence there, but this existence is no more worthy of the name of life and is like a non-existence. It's just fascinating to me that, that when we think about death, we tend to think about something like we can imagine that as like a, a kind of non-being. And he's like, nope, you still exist. Mm -hmm. But your existence is so different from what God made us for that scripture understands it as, as, as not life. But it's a state of being. It's not a state of non-being. And it also, it seems as if he is trying to argue against an elevation of death as this higher spiritual existence too. Yes, I think you're right. The other fascinating thing Bavink says, and I was like, yep, I do that. He writes on page 531, when we think of the future, we almost exclusively think of our own death and the assumption of our soul in heaven. Yes, I do. My question is, what's going to happen to me when I die? Yeah. He says the Israelites had an idea of life which was much richer than ours. For them, the awareness of fellowship with God was connected with the fellowship with his people and his land, which was, I had never, for some reason, I'd never thought about that until he wrote that. And he says, hence, for the Israelite, death was fully overcome and life brought to light only when, as in the future, the Lord himself would come to dwell among his people, purge it of all unrighteousness, grant it victory over all its enemies, and cause it to live safely in a land of prosperity and peace. The saint of Israel felt himself always to be part of the whole, a member of the family, the race, the tribe, the nation, and the future of that people, in the future of that people, the believer in Israel found his own future assured. I just became even more aware of my individualism when I read all that. And I was like, oh yeah, I never think about the fact of being a part of a people and a land. What I love that he does in this section is he, by looking at the view of death and the afterlife in the Old Testament, 
he he deconstructs some ways the how, how people see there's an underdeveloped view of the afterlife because it doesn't talk a lot about kind of that spiritual existence when our our soul separates from our body. But what he does is he flips that back around and says, actually, they have a more developed view of the afterlife, as you just mentioned, like because because the holistic nature of like that's actually the fullness of life. And so he he's doing this really brilliant thing where he's showing in the Old Testament, actually, we need to we need to actually grab categories from the Old Testament to more fully understand what eternal life is. Yes, and this just I mean again, this is biblical theology. It's a rebuke to those of us that have had our had our theology shaped in reverse where we started with the New Testament and then worked backwards and said, Oh yeah, there's another hell half of the Bible. What's that about? Um that's not how Bavik works. He tends to work from the Old Testament forward. And it's the same the same way N.T. Wright works, too, where he talks about, you know, we have to understand what God promised to Israel in order to understand what Jesus is fulfilling. And you can see how Bavink's category there of people and land, those are just the covenantal categories of God's promise to Abraham, right? God promises Abraham a people and a land. And so Bavink is saying, so all through the Old Testament, you see uh, death and life connected to a people and a land, not just to individual existence. And there's this sort of holistic way that God's people in the Old Testament think about that. And then that's how we, that, that can help us then understand how they anticipated the coming of the Messiah. Yeah. The true full life was the victory over all separation, like that the holistic understanding of eternal life. Okay. Here's the, here's the, I don't know if it's the second or the third thing. I know I'm like, my lists are getting all running together. Uh, here's the, the second sentence in this chapter that really provoked me. He's talking now about Christ's first and second comings, you know, his coming in his first in, in, incarnation and then his second coming. Bavink writes, the time which elapses between his first and second coming is in fact a continuous coming of Christ. As yes, well. this, this was probably the biggest takeaway for me in this chapter. Like, my, my, mind, take, yeah, my yeah. mind exploded when I read that, but go on, Chris. No, I'm, I'm keep going. I'm just agreeing with you. I'm like, yes, this is, this is rich. So he, you know, he talks about, okay, so the, and, and I, one of my seminary professors used to say, think about this. I think I've used this in a sermon, even Bethany, think about like you're driving to the Rocky mountains that when you first get to wherever it is in Colorado, you can like see the mountains in the distance. It looks like they're all at the same level away from you, right? It's like there, there they are. But then as you get in, you realize, oh, this one is in front of that one. And then the other peak is like miles away. And so you see that there's like a depth between them and one of my seminary professors used to use that analogy as saying the Old Testament is like looking at the mountains from far away and feeling like they're all right there. And so the prophets talk about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, as this singular event. And what the New Testament shows us is actually there are two comings of the Lord. There's the coming of the Messiah in his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection. And then there's this later coming of the day of the Lord. And we're living in this in between this already not yet period. And, and Bavink is using the same language of there's Christ's first coming in suffering and humiliation and death. And there is a second coming yet to come that the Bible tells us about. And between those two comings is the continuous coming of Christ. That instead of thinking those is like, oh, Jesus was here once a long time ago and maybe he'll be here again in the future. Actually, we should think about this as Christ is continuous in between those two comings. He is continually coming through his spirit, through his word among his people. Uh, which is a, fa uh, I don't know, a richer and fuller way of thinking about what does it mean that we have the presence of Christ with us? Let me read a few ways that Bavink writes about the first and second comings of Christ. He writes, 
At his first coming, Christ laid the foundation. At his second, he brings the completion of the building of God. The first is the beginning, and the second is the end of his work as mediator. Because the first and second comings of Christ are so intimately related to each other, and because the one would not for a moment be thinkable without the other, the Holy Scriptures place very little emphasis on the length or shortness of the time that must elapse between the two. In Scripture, the temporal connection is far behind the material connection in importance. That was another fascinating observation because the, the question that I think I have most often as I read the Bible is, why is there so much time? <laughs> why, why has it been so long? Why does Jesus say like, oh, you know, be ready. I'm, I'm going to come as a thief in the night. And it's like, it's been a couple thousand years. It doesn't feel like, a, you know, doesn't, it seems like a long time. What Bavik is saying is that that's because the temporal distance between those two comings is not as significant as the material connection between them. And so in light of that, the, the time intervening is presented often by the New Testament as very short. Uh, he quotes, you know, all these passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter and 1 John, uh, where we're living in the end of the ages, the last times, we have only a little while left to suffer. The day is approaching, Hebrews 10, the future is drawing nigh, James 5, the time is at hand, Revelation chapter 1, the judge is standing at the door, James 5. He, he says the New Testament goes to great lengths to let us know that the time is short, but it's not thinking temporally as much as it's saying because Christ has now come in his first coming, you guarantee that the second coming is coming because these are connected. These two comings of Christ are two poles of one singular event. Yeah. He says at the bottom of page 535 that the emphasis is on, and that shortness is to to show just how closely connected these two things are. And so the it's don't see these things as two distant, separate uh, separate but interrelated events in history, but but actually completely interconnected, and and that is meant to bring us hope. That is meant to bring a sense of urgency, and that that kind of shrinks time, so to speak, if you want to get into the temporal sense of it. But I, I liked that insight of the 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 shortness is to draw your attention to the connectivity, of the first and second coming, more so than to ponder how long it will be. He also mentions that the New Testament saints, in light of that. Um, their expectations were toward the return of Christ and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God rather than on their, their own personal end and death. It's interesting that you do see very few of the New Testament writers wondering, like, what's going to happen to me when I die? They seem to put the emphasis on God's kingdom is at hand. His promises are going to be fulfilled. His people are going to be vindicated. Um, you know, even in the, the text in the New Testament that we go to for our own thinking about what's going to happen, like First Thessalonians 5, you know, um, they, they tend to frame what's going to happen to us, to me, in terms of the kingdom of God, the culmination of all things, not in terms of like, Chris, when you die, here's what's going to happen to your soul. And so it is interesting to think about how, again, our individualism bleeds into how we think about death, where we're, we're primarily wondering as individual human beings, how can I answer this question for my grandma who's facing death or for my cousin who just got, you know, diagnosed with an illness. And those aren't wrong questions to ask, but the New Testament seems to frame it more in terms of like the culmination of God's kingdom. And of course, as that comes, yes, all of his people are going to be vindicated as well. The communal comes first and then the individual. He uh, spends a, a page or two, Chris, talking about purgatory. Yes. Yes. You know, it's not a good reform systematic theology without a few shots. At Catholic theology, so, you know. 
he uh, he wants you to understand, friends, because you know some of our Catholic, uh, some of our popular Catholic theology is uh, imprecise on this point. He wants you to understand. Hey, purgatory is not a place where you go to, like you know, get a little more time to repent. It's a place you go to work off the lingering effects of your sin that you didn't have enough time to work off during your lifetime. So he's, he's like, some people think of purgatory as like a place where you get a second chance to believe in Jesus. That's not actually what it is according to Catholic theology. It's strictly a place where you are purged, hence the name, purged of your remaining uh, fleshliness and the, the implications of your sin so that you can enter into heaven in a blessed state. And so he just wants to make clear like, hey, this life is the only life in which you can repent. There's not, even if you are a good Roman Catholic, purgatory doesn't mean like, oh, maybe, you know, in purgatory you get a, a second chance to believe in Jesus. So he wants to correct your understanding of even what purgatory is in the first place. And then he goes on to say, yeah, but it doesn't exist. Holy Scripture, yeah. <laughs> Holy Scripture doesn't teach that. So even though, now that I've fixed your Catholic theology, also it's not biblical in the first place. Let me fix it and then just, you should chuck it. <laughs> he says, uh, Holy Scripture knows nothing of all these comfortless teaching, these comfortless teachings. It sets forth everywhere that this earth is the only place for repentance and purging. Death as the penalty for sin represents a total break with life here on earth. And at the last judgment, the interim period gets no consideration. The judgment is concerned solely with what happened in the body, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So there you go. It has always struck me that the doctrine of purgatory just has felt like, well, what what about the complete work of Christ? Now, I know within a Catholic framework, it makes sense. And so I want to be respectful to, you know, the consistency of their their theology. But it just at a visceral level, intellectual level, biblical level, it just feels like it, it's like, was Jesus not enough in in what he did? Mm. Yes. Excellent question. You're, you were both an Irenic Protestant, but also a good convictional Protestant in those few sentences that you just said. That was nice, Chris. I try. <laughs> uh, let me just read the two sentences from Bovink where he talks about that. According to the Roman Church, comparatively few saints and martyrs can by their good works achieve so much on earth that upon death they are immediately taken up into heaven. The great majority of the believers, according to this view, must upon death spend a shorter or longer period in purgatory in order there to pay the temporal penalties which they have earned by their sins and which in their earthly life they could no more satisfy. Purgatory is therefore not a place of repentance in which the unbeliever and the ungodly are still given the opportunity to be saved. It is not really a place of purging and sanctification either, for the believers who go there cannot achieve any new excellences or merits there. Rather, it is singly and solely a place of punishment, where the believers, who on the one hand are blessed and on the other hand are poor souls, are so long punished by material fire that the measure of their temporal penalties is satisfied. And so you can see, as he describes it there, that it really does get to the question, Chris, of like, okay, if there is such a place, then what has Christ really done for us? Mm -hmm. And yeah. that does seem to be the question that the reformers were seeking to answer as they said, yep, that's not a biblical teaching. All right, let's talk about what happens to you when you die. Chris, what happens to you when you die? To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. <laughs> Haven't we talked about this before? I'm sure we have. I'm sure we have. You, you got to go and confuse things with Sheol and paradise and gulfs between that. <laughs> 
which I, I do appreciate your That was all the Old Testament paradigm. That is true. He does say, believers upon their death immediately become sharers of the heavenly blessedness, yet still their condition is in a certain sense a preliminary one and an imperfect one. After all, their bodies are still in the grave and are there subject to decay. Taken as a whole, therefore, believers in this interim period find themselves still in the state of death. The intermediate state is not yet the final state. Yeah, I thought that was a really helpful explanation to say, don't don't glorify being separated from the body because it's you're you're the scripture says you're in a state of death. Even though you're, you know, you're experiencing blessedness, you're still in that state of death. More is to come. Yes. And that's why the second coming is so important because that's when we are going to be reunited with our bodies and experience full bodily final resurrection. And that's why we look forward then to the coming of Christ. I like this line. Since Christ is the perfect savior, he is not content with the redemption of the soul, but affects also the redemption of the body. Yeah. Preach that bodily resurrection. Here's where he talks about this continuous coming of Christ again. Let me read these. He comes back to this idea. The history of the world, which intervenes between Jesus' ascension and return, is a continuous coming of Christ, a progressive gathering of his church on earth, a continuing subjection of his enemies. Often we do not see it, we do not understand it, but Christ is in very fact the Lord of times, the King of ages. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So I just love, he just wants to say like, look, whether you feel like you see it or not, this is a continuous coming of Christ. He's doing his work. He's gathering his people. That's why he hasn't come again yet is because he is gathering all his people to himself. Um, now should we tackle the, the Kiliasts, Chris? We should tackle the Kiliasts because if we may have some Kiliasts in our listenership and we just want to help them. We do. Kilius, by the way, the word uh, Kilia is the, the Greek word for a thousand. Am I right? Is it Greek or Latin? I don't want to get my language confused. But anyways, yeah, I don't know if this, it's Greek. If you're Achilles, that means you you're a premillennial. You believe that Christ is going to come back and reign for a thousand years, and then the end will come. Bavik is not a premillennial, and you know he wants to take issue with you if you are not in a not in a feisty way, but just he wants he thinks you're wrong. And he's he's talking about more the historic premill, not the dispensational. Pre-mill. Although I think he would. Have more agree. to say. Yeah, yeah. He would have, have more, more to say, to say about yes. the dispensational pre yeah. But it is, he's writing in 1910, right? Or yeah. 1905. So he probably, I mean, John Nelson Darby had been working for 40 years by then. So I bet that sort of the, the dispensational point of view, especially in Europe, was already known to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's what he says. The proponents of the premillennial doctrine, the so-called Kiliasts, make a distinction in the return of Christ between a first and a second return. At the first return, Christ will subdue the anti-Christian forces, bind Satan, raise up the dead believers, gather the church, and rule over the nations. After this kingdom has existed for some time, Christ will return once more to raise up all men from the dead, to pronounce judgment upon them, and to establish the perfected kingdom of God upon the new earth. And by the way, that's a historic position. There's always been premillennial folks in the church. This is not, you know, you're not a heretic if you believe this, yeah. but Bothing doesn't agree with you. Okay, he wants to say the fundamental error of this kiliastic departure from the truth lies at its mistaken conception of the relation between the Old and New Testament. That was a fascinating line for me. Yeah. He's basically saying, yeah, you're not doing biblical theology right. That's why you landed there. Yeah, and it also locates it in a little bit different spot than I think some folks go. 
you're looking at me with your eyes. I'm, I'm, like I'm you're wondering, not sure yeah, that what you yeah, just God, said I'm wondering. is true. I'm, I'm kind of running through the, the people that I know that hold to this and kind of how they make the argument. And there is a sense in which they go back to, as Boving's going to highlight here, the Old Testament and the uh, sort of priority of Israel. But they also, I think, make it in some other places too. But I think, you know, he's going to undercut the argument here, which I think undercuts any other aspect of the argument. Yes, he wants to go back to the promise to Abraham and say the promise to Abraham and his seed did not have as its purpose to place the people of Israel at some time in the future, but rather to bless all the generations of the earth in him who was the true seed of Abraham. Israel was chosen not at the expense of mankind, but for the benefit of mankind. Accordingly, when Christ appeared on earth, all the promises of the Old Testament began to be fulfilled in his church. Those promises are not, throughout the dispensation of the New Testament, merely lying there, statically awaiting fulfillment, but they are constantly being fulfilled from the first coming of Christ to his return. What some dispensational premillennialists do is because they read the promises in the Old Testament as so connected to land and to like the promised land, one of the reasons people sometimes are pre-mill is because they believe for those promises to be fulfilled, Christ needs to come back and actually give his people back the promised land so that he can fulfill all those promises in a very earthly way. Otherwise, those promises remain unfulfilled. And what Bavink is saying is, nope, the promises God gives throughout the Old Testament don't lie there statically as Christ comes in the New Testament. They are actively being fulfilled from the coming of Christ to his return. So he's saying all those earth, those physical land promises, you know, here's the boundaries of the promised land and, you know, so forth, that those are all fulfilled in Christ and in the New Testament era. Now, do you like what he's doing here or not so much, Chris? I like, what I like about what he's doing the most is that that line of how he's situating Israel within the plan of redemption in, in the church. He's He's emphasizing God's plan was not to make Israel sort of separate and distinct or at the head of the, all the nations that he said, but rather they're, they're a vessel, they're an instrument. Now, Paul says in Romans that there is a certain blessing and a certain um, just specialness to Israel because God chose them, but it, it it's more as a, a servant and, and just kind of the blessings of, hey, you got the prophets, you got, you know, there, there's just a way he works uniquely and distinctly, but ultimately that was going to be folded into what Christ was going to do by bringing in all the nations. So I like how he he simplifies uh, sometimes what is very complex exegesis into this very direct, like, hey, if you get how God is situating Israel wrong, then yeah, you're going to start making these these mistakes in how you view the millennium. But if you see it correctly, then you basically go, oh yeah, that makes sense that that this isn't an actual like thousand year kingdom. Yes, I like how Bavink wants to talk about this chiliastic departure from the truth. He's, he's, he's clearly not, he's like friendly toward the pre-mills, but he's also like, yeah, you guys are departing from the truth. Yeah. You're wrong. I think that's a good way of doing theology. Like, you know, I think you're wrong. I love you. We're all in the kingdom together, but it's not a thousand year kingdom. Some people, we're going to get good listener feedback from all the pre-mills who are like, hey, you know what? I don't agree with Bobvink on that. That's fine. It's good. You don't have to agree with Bob. We'll either get people push back or we'll get requests to like talk about this topic talk even more, more like about the millennium all the, all the, pers- the perspectives okay well at the end of this paragraph here's what i've learned as i've grown much of what tim keller does is just repackaged bovink he's a good he's a 
He loves Bavink. And now I'd like, there's a reason. And there's this section at the end of this paragraph. There was a famous talk that Tim Keller gave in 2007 at the Gospel Coalition where he did this little vamp on Jesus as the truer and better such and such. And he went through the whole Old Testament from Adam to Zechariah and sort of just said, Jesus is the better Adam, Jesus is the better Noah. You know, he did this whole little rant. And when Keller did it, you could tell when he delivered the sermon that he was, he was vamp, he, he like memorized it. He was doing something, it was like a cadence. It was almost like a little rap. And he knew what he was going to do with each thing. But it, people were like, were you quoting someone? What were you, where, where did you get that? And ever since then, people have been like, hey, where did that come from? He's like, well, I don't know. It just came from Ed Clowney. And it's, it's just, it's just a way of reading the Old Testament. And uh, I even have done that. And people are like, were you going to credit Tim Keller for that idea that, you know, Jesus is the truer and better Joseph? And I was like, well, I don't think so. Cause I, I don't think he was the first person to yeah, ever say that. Unique to Keller, I, yeah. He did it. He, he light, lined it out in a really compelling way. And, uh, let me read to you from this paragraph from Bavink on page 542, and I think you will see the similarities. Not only is Christ in his person, the true prophet, priest, and king, the true servant of the Lord, not only is his offering the true sin offering, the true circumcision, the true Passover, but his church is also the true seed of Abraham, the true Israel, the true people of God, the true temple, and the real Zion. All the blessings of Abraham and all the promises of the Old Testament accrue to the church in Christ and in the course of the centuries are carried out there. When I saw uh, Bavink doing all that, you know, the true seed, the true Israel, the true people, the true, I was like, well, there you go. There's where, that's who Keller's vamping off of and who Ed Clowney and others are vamping off of. It's just a a good biblical theology. So the real question isn't, are you going to credit Keller? The real question is, Keller, are you going to credit all the people you ripped off? No, because it's like a rapper. He was just using the hook, but he wrote his own lyrics. You see what I'm saying? Okay, gotcha. It's what musicians do. They they use the beat. They wrote their own lyrics. And suddenly the thought of Keller rapping just became compelling. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. To be so amazing. The chapter ends with the renewal of the heavens and earth. After the final judgment and the banishment of the wicked, which by the way, he talks about, we didn't really cover that, but he talks about final judgment. Um, and that is real. Bavink believes in a real, actual final judgment, real heaven and hell, all of that stuff like we all should. Um, There is a glory of heaven, or there's a heaven of glory, but there's also a hell, he says. Um, After the final judgment and banishment of the wicked, there follows the renewal of the world. Holy scriptures speak of this in very strong language. Tell us that the heaven and earth will vanish like smoke, will become old as a garment. God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Nevertheless, we are not in this connection to think of an absolutely new creation. It is true that the present heaven and earth will in their present form pass away, But just as man himself is recreated by Christ and is not annihilated but created anew, so too the world in its essence will be preserved, even though in its form it undergoes a great change so that it can be called a new heaven and a new earth. And in this new creation, God will then establish his kingdom. So that means we should actually care about stuff? The material world is going to matter. Matter matters. We can't be throwing all our plastics in the ocean, you know? That's, that's why we need a purging. It's why we need to burn everything is so that God can burn up all the plastic and we can get an actual real physical creation that's beautiful again. Except we can't be near the plastic when they burn. <laughs> that's yeah. not good. Well, he's going to figure out a way to do that and yeah. just annihilate the plastic. I don't know. Great. But we, gotta, we got problems with plastic in the world is what I'm saying. Where did that idea come from that 
the new heavens and new earth is just like God's just going to burn all this, cast well, it aside, and something new. Like where? Because that's what Peter said. Second Peter, right? The heavens and earth will be burned up. But but why was it interpreted that way? Like, well, because it says burned up. Burned up, he means burned up. It like says, what else you want me to see? Yeah, the else? heavens and earth will pass away. I mean, it's just the language is very decreation language. And I think yeah. again, people who haven't read the Old Testament prophets and don't know, oh, that's a prophetic trope that he's yeah. using. Yeah. They, they, you know, a literalistic reader reads that and says, "Oh, it's, I guess the earth can be burned up." Like, no, he's using the same language that the prophets always used for the sun is going to, you know, turn to blood and the, you know. The, the heaven and earth are going to melt away. Oh, Peter says that happened on the day of Pentecost, by the way. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. You know, so you yeah. have to be an intelligent Bible reader in order to not make those mistakes. I think, in, you know, honestly, I made those same mistakes because I just hadn't, I wasn't steeped well enough in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to compare similar to the kind of the hermeneutic that reads the, the imagery and revelation as literal rather than yes. apocalyptic. Right. I want to close it with this. Bavink wants you to remember, this is, so brilliant, and he does it in one paragraph. But he wants you to know, hey, you know what? There's going to be different levels of glory in heaven. It's okay. Bethany's going to have a bigger mansion than me in heaven, and that should be okay with me. Listen to this. In that kingdom, the new heavens and new earth, God's new kingdom, there will be variation and change within the oneness of the fellowship. Small and great will be there, Revelation 22. The first and the last. Each person there will receive his own name and his own place in accordance with the works of faith and love which he has done on earth. For he who sows sparingly shall also harvest sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also harvest bountifully. There's reward in heaven for all the persecution which the disciple of Jesus has borne for his sake and for every deed which he has done in his name. In proportion as a person has been faithful in using the talents given him, he will in the kingdom of God receive greater honor and lordship. Even the cup of cold water, which in the name of a disciple is given to one of his little ones, will not be forgotten in the, in the day of judgment. He crowns and rewards the good works, which in and through himself he brought into being through his own. Thus all it is true share in the same blessings, the same eternal life, and the same fellowship with God, but there is nevertheless a difference among them in brilliance and glory. By this difference of rank and place and task, the communion of the saints is enriched, just as the harmony of a hymn is enhanced by the quality of the voices and the beauty of light is multiplied in the richness of its colors and tints, so Christ will one time be glorified in the multitude of his saints. I think that's pretty that powerful. Was, yeah, that was amazing. And his, he, he says earlier than this, that, and that's not going to be like, you're not going to feel bad about that. You're going to be glad for that. It's going to make total sense to you why that person has a more beautiful whatever in heaven mm -hmm. and why they're experiencing a higher degree of glory and and fullness than you might be. And that's not going to bother you. So heaven is not going to be this communist utopia where we're all just, everything is equal. Yeah. It's not a government planned economy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah, there's some richness. variation and yeah. change and, yeah. and diversity there. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And um, by the way, people often ask like, what do we do with all those passages where Jesus promises reward and Bavik is just saying, you just read them and <laughs> that's what they mean. Like what it doesn't. And, and it's interesting what he says that line where he says he crowns and rewards the good works, which in and through himself, he brought into being through his own. He's just saying like, you're God did that through you. It was his grace doing it. He's bringing glory to himself in that. It's not that you're a better Christian than the person next to you, but there is a, a variation and difference in uh, the suffering you endure in the world, the good works that you do in the name of God and all of that 
factors into the new heavens and new earth, and that's not in opposition to grace, and it's not weird and you know strange. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. And um, I just don't read a whole lot of reform. It seems like reform people tend to shy away from that because it gets into questions of like, well, you know, did that person, are they more meaningful to God than this other person? And he just has a way of treating all that that's, I think, very beautiful. And that makes me say, yeah, I want you to have a bigger house than me and have that's kind of cool. I want to walk to the next neighborhood over and be like, oh man, these people, yeah, they, they should live here. Yeah. This is yeah. where they should live. That's great. I definitely deserve the house I have. And I'm happy with it because I'm not coveting anyone else's stuff. <laughs> All right. So there you go. There's Bavink on eternal life. And by the way, there's the end of the wonderful works of God. We did it. Our two-year journey on Third Wednesday Theology. Love it. Are we going to continue this tradition or are we, the position's kind of a let's one-off? Let's decide right What's now. next? I was going to ask you, what do you think should be next? I mean, it feels like we should just keep reading some more Bavink, but I don't, you know. I yeah, no, it kind of feels the, like any any other theologian would just kind of feel not as good. <laughs> I don't want to start reading Reformed Dogmatics, so it's like 2,000 pages. So yeah, that's And that's pretty technical, too. Listeners, by next third Wednesday, we will have made an, a decision, and we will know what we're going to do. But for now, we just want to say thanks for journeying with us through rich biblical theology from Herman Bovink. And if you've joined us along the way, I hope you will pick up the wonderful works of God. It's a small systematic theology. It's not big. It's not dense. It's not hard to read. But I think it really does give us a, a very nice and full treatment of most of the doctrines of Scripture. And it's helpful both for younger Christians and for those of us who are trying to preach and teach and lead. So um, wherever you find yourself on your journey, this is a wonderful book to have on your shelf. Thank you, Chris, for first recommending to us the wonderful works of God. And thank you, listeners, for joining us along the way. Bethany, this is your last chance to give us an outro for Bovink, the wonderful works of God. <laughs> this is your last Bovink outro. It's going to sound the same as all the others. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you should you should eat it. You should say it with a waffle in your mouth. Ooh. I'm sure people would love that. I don't, yeah, that, that wouldn't be so <laughs> I was going to say with listener. a Dutch accent, but I don't even know what, mm. what that is, so... The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, or if you want to send us a snack, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.